0: Hey, tonight's speaker is Janelle Hallman. Janelle is a counselor here in town. She's also been uh, an adjunct at the seminary, teaching some classes on counseling, human sexuality, and such. We had Janelle speak several years ago, back in the Tollgate days. I got permission from her to tell this story. This is awesome. (laughs) This is a gothic Nathan story. So... Janelle begins her talk by praying. And she probably prays for ten minutes. And she starts out praying for people in the congregation who have undergone the most severe sexual trauma that you can ever imagine. So she starts off with things like, like gang rape and incest. And praying for those people and the wounds that have been caused by that terrible abuse. And she keeps talking and she kind of lessens the severity of the offenses and keeps praying for them all. By the time she gets to masturbation, the room is quiet. You could hear a pin drop. She's almost whispering her prayer. It's real dark almost in there. And she starts praying for folks who struggle with masturbation and its after effects. And all of a sudden, from out of the darkness, you hear this voice. Hey! Masturbation's not a sin! (laughs) That was gothic Nathan. At at, at which point, the room was like stone silent again for about 30 seconds with a couple little snickers like... (laughs) (laughs) And Janelle just paused... And then kept on praying. It was, <laughs> it was totally awesome. She's not going to do that today, <laughs> because she's learned her lesson at Scum of the Earth Church. But um, you uh, will be blessed if you open your hearts and your minds to the kinds of things Janelle has to say today. It's going to be rated R today for for real. So please. Uh, Please welcome Janelle Hallman.
1: Good evening, everyone. I carry a bag wherever I go. Ah, uh, I, yeah, Mike invited me to come and speak. See, he always asks me to come and speak on these really easy subjects like sexuality. And tonight he wants me to focus in a little bit more on homosexuality. You know, really one of those topics that there's no controversy or difficulty. Um, So I get myself into trouble a lot because these subjects are just close to all of our hearts, journeys, experiences... Sexuality is a fundamental aspect of who we are as human beings made in God's image. And there's a powerful plan that God has <clears throat> related specifically to the fact that we're male and female and that we're sexual beings. And I'm not going to talk about all of that tonight, but it's powerful stuff, as you know. There's a reason that sexuality is so powerful. So a little bit more about me um, I am in my fourth career because I could never decide what I want to be when I grow up. And so right now, I am a counselor and love to teach and speak. Um, About 24 years ago, I discovered Where Grace Abounds. And if those of you who were here last week, because Roger was here, right? Roger, a staff person at Where Grace Abounds spoke, shared his story, and if you weren't here, Where Grace Abounds is a ministry available for people impacted by homosexuality. that just wanna understand more, people who may be in conflict with their same-sex attraction, people who aren't, but just wanna be in the presence of people who love and accept them, Um, friends and family members, just really, it's really open to anybody, and it's an incredible community like you have here incredibly open and loving and full of grace where grace abounds. So I found out about that ministry several years ago because a couple of my girlfriends became sexually involved and were attending. We did home church back then and none of us really knew or understood anything about that but we loved, we knew we loved these women and wanted to walk with them and so we we did eventually find out about Where Grace Abounds and several of us kind of went down there to learn and I was one of them. And uh, I just found it it was an amazing place to be sitting with people who were honest about their lives. And it really impacted me. Um, I was going down there to help my girlfriends. but. I was really personally impacted and knew that I had a lot of issues in my own life that I wanted to look at. And so I kind of became a member at Where Grace Abounds and sat in support groups for years and eventually decided God was really calling me to walk alongside people, especially people with homosexuality, homosexual feelings. and I had a real burden for the church to begin to understand this issue better so that they could be a safe place for people. Uh, So that was what kind of launched my beginning in this area, and after several years of hanging in support groups, I watched the women, and they they would kind of come into the community and be for a little bit, and then they would disappear. And the men were thriving in this community, and so I watched that for a couple of years, and I thought, I think the women need something more. And I thought, I, I think they need something more one-on-one, where it is really safe, really a safe place. So that's when I went to, back to school, and I went to Denver Seminary to get my master's in counseling, knowing that I would specialize in female homosexuality. And little did I know that when I graduated and started my private practice, that <clears throat> sitting with the women... Um, I learned nothing. <laughs> I knew nothing. Uh, I felt so ill, and, and I'm, that's not a statement about Denver Seminary. It's a statement about, um, you know, you, you have book knowledge. You learn book knowledge, and, and that's as good as you can get as what's on the written page. But when you're sitting with people, it's a whole different ballgame. So I spent probably five years letting my clients teach me and just teach me about their journey, teach me about their lives, teach me about the pain in their life, the struggles. And um, and it was amazing. It was amazing to discover and learn about women, especially women who, um, I work with a variety of people, and I'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, um, but, but women who call themselves lesbians or women who don't want to be lesbians, real mixture. Uh, so. Um, about eight years into my journey as a therapist, I thought, I think I need to write a book and kind of had a feel even early on that I might be the one to write a book because nothing was out there on female homosexuality. And that's true in a lot of counseling issues. Books are written about men for men or boys because a lot of the research is done on males and there was just so little for the women. So I thought, okay, we'll do this. And, and that ended up being um, horrendous. It was just, it was, oh my gosh, what can, I, I can't even describe how hard it was. Um, and I had contacted everybody in the United States who was working in this field. Will you please write this book? I'll help you. I'll give you everything I know. But they were all like, no, nope, we're not gonna do it. You are going to do it. We'll give you everything we know. Um, So uh, I started by interviewing about 50 women all around the nation and then interviewed mothers of lesbian daughters and interviewed other therapists and then started compiling. I had to go through all of the scientific research, all of the literature on female homosexuality, and then try to put it all together, and it was absolutely overwhelming. And I thought it was going to kill me seriously. And about four years into it, you know, it's... You don't think what it takes to write a book. You just don't think, not to mention a research-based book. Um, Thought it really was gonna ruin my life. And I would have people speak into me during that process. And if I hadn't had those people, um, I, I may have quit. But I remember one woman said, Janelle, I just keep getting this vision. I keep getting this vision of all these women. I work in a patio room. We have a room with kind of all glass in the backyard. And she said, I get a picture of all these women standing outside looking in to the window. And they're waiting. They're waiting because they want to know that somebody knows them and understands them. And it was words like that that I thought, how can I quit? How can I quit when the women I work with, who are striving for the life that they believe God has for them, they are in pain and they are working so hard and they feel like their journey is endless? How can I quit? Because I thought if I quit, well, I mean, what am I showing them? So I kept laboring and laboring, and the book, fin- the book finally came out. Ta-da. So, and it was a miracle. It was a miracle. Um, so any of you who do, uh, if, if you're a woman who struggles, this book is for you. I wrote it for counselors um, because my publisher wanted it to be for counselors. But I knew the women by, by the time I got this book done, and I knew that they're intelligent, gifted women and that they would read a book in the way that I wrote it. So it's, it's really for the women, but it's for therapists, parents, parents. Love it. Um, if you have a loved one and you want to understand more, um, this is the book. So there's a few back there on the table um, if you want them. They're 15 bucks. Okay. I am a counselor. Um, I have five therapists who work with me. We're up in the Westminster area. And our philosophy in counseling is to just meet people where they're at and try to provide a safe place for you to journey, to just be able to talk unload, um, try to figure out what's the next step, whatever it is that you're facing. Um, and that is, that is our ultimate aim and goal. And we do not come with judgment, and we do not come with our own agenda. But we also do know how to support people and maybe give you some guidance. And we do um, can do reduced-rate counseling, and I don't want, if you really need somebody to talk to, I don't want to turn you away. So you just tell us what your situation is so that we can work with you. So there's some, I've got some cards and brochures too. Okay. <clears throat> I'm like really big into object lessons, so that's why I have to have all this because we're gonna do an object lesson. Is this okay when I turn my head, can you still hear me? Okay, because I'd rather not hold this because I'll look like a bumbling fool if I don't already. Okay, um, so, We're going to focus in on, really, sexuality, um, homosexuality. So a few words about that. Uh, Over the years, this has been a lot lot of years. I've worked with people, and I've worked with a lot of men, too. Uh, There is so much variation in folks, and I'm probably preaching to the choir, because you guys probably know this Than a lot of groups that I talk to, but um, I'm just going to give you some varieties out there uh, of homosexualities, I guess is what I would call it. Um, there's, there's women, especially young women, who are engaging in same-sex behavior, same-sex sexuality uh, for exploration, experimentation, or to turn on the guys. Kissing the girls, girls kissing girls to turn on the guys. There's a variety of reasons. Um, but that is a, that's homosexual behavior, so there's something going on there. And how that's impacting the young ladies? I don't know. I haven't worked with a lot of them, so but suspect that there's an impact there. Um, there are lots of folks who have sexual uh, relations with same-sex people, sexual relationships with the opposite sex, um, and they call them, consider themselves straight. But they're sleeping with same-sex partners. And there's people who are doing that who call themselves bisexual. And there's people who do that who call themselves gay or homosexual. Um, There are some folks who do not believe they have a choice. They feel profoundly homosexual. I work with a lot of women who are like, you know, there is not a chance. There is not a chance that I can connect with a guy. I just... I can't. It's just not there. The emotional connection's not there. I don't like that thing on his body. It's not going to (laughs) happen. Okay? These are not women who have a choice to sleep around with guys. So this is a woman who I would say has what we call a homosexual orientation. Now, I work with a lot of women with homosexual orientations, and some of them call themselves lesbians or homosexual. But a lot of them don't. A lot of them have a homosexual orientation, but they do not believe that this is who they really are. And they do not identify as gay or lesbian. Um, There are people who have homosexual orientation, and they do identify themselves as gay or lesbian, but they do not engage in sexual behavior. They do not act out sexually. And that's not necessarily because of a vow of celibacy. It's because relationships don't happen for them, possibly, or there's other sexual issues that prevent them um, from being in a relationship. So I could go on and on on all of the variety, all of the different bits and pieces, because we've got Behavior, we have feelings, same-sex feelings. It's all different nuances to homosexual attraction and why people are attracted and what they are attracted to with the same sex. There's all sorts of identities, and I'm just kind of staying focused on the homosexual ide- identities, but if we bring in gender and the possible confusions around gender, the list just really expands in all sorts of gender identities, sexual identities. So what I wanna say, the point here is, um, there is no one category called homosexuality that everybody fits into. And yet, when when you hear the media, they're assuming that this is just a one-dimensional issue and everybody fits into the box. And this is not the case at all. And it's kind of a mess. You know, we're all a mess. It's just so complex. And, and we'll touch on what maybe goes into um, what kind of can produce a homosexual uh, orientation. But what I do know, I, can't, I don't have all the answers. The answers aren't all out there to even be had at this point. But what I do know is that God's love absolutely extends, his grace absolutely covers, his mercy absolutely covers and supports, and, and his heart is to reach our hearts. And he knows the confusions. He knows the brokenness. He knows that some of it may not all change this life. Some of us need five lifetimes to heal some of the wounding You know, he knows, and I know he wants our hearts. So that I do know, that I'm sure of. Um, And what I'll do is just share what the best I can in terms of what I understand homosexuality to be and why there's so many varieties. But I'll apologize now because there's no way that I can talk about this subject without offending somebody um, or stepping on toes there's just no way. It is an impossibility. It has been for many years, but it's worse now. It's actually gotten harder over the years to talk about this subject. So, my intention is to not offend. My attention, intention is to not judge. My intention is to not categorize unjustly. But to be able to talk about an issue, we kind of have to talk in generalities, you know? Otherwise, we just can't get any understanding. So, I just apologize now. And if you get really upset, you can come and talk to me afterwards so that we can sort through it. So so what I want to do is to build a life so that we can just see how, how life really, really profoundly impacts our sexuality, our relationships, our intimacies, our identities. Um, and, then I'll, and then I'll focus specifically more on female homosexuality at the end. So, all that is human, everything that is human involves what we call nature, which is genetics, biology, hormones, body shape, size, organs, how our organs are shaped and sized, uh, all the physicality, right? Nature. That's God's business. So if you don't like your genetics, you got to talk to him. <laughs> um, it's really God's business. Then the other side of the formula is nurture, which is our environment, our experiences, and um, that would include our traumas and abuses, our losses, our successes, everything, all our relationships, how they impact us. And so we've got the genetics that also determine possibly our temperament, our sensitivity level, how we perceive life, combined then with all of these experiences. And what happens is it all interacts. It all interacts. So we are perceiving our environment and taking in our experiences based on who we are, temperamentally, genetically. So it's all unique stuff. and it, it's forming all these beliefs inside of us. It's forming defenses. It's forming survival modes. We're just, it's all happening on an unconscious level. We don't have a clue what all of this processing is doing when we're little kids. We're just surviving, surviving. That's, that's the name of the game, and it really is. God wants us to survive and choose life. So I'm really glad all of you have survived this far. Life is good. There is goodness this side of heaven. It's an amazing miracle, but it exists. So we're going to build a life and just kind of think back about all of the different stages of growing and developing a life. But we're going to start with the blueprint, you know, the nature part, just remembering that that's our basis. Yet, Even this is hard because we start having experiences in the womb. That's been documented scientifically. So where does nature even start an experience? I mean, it's almost from the very beginning we've got both interacting. And they affect each other, too. Our experiences and how we process the emotion or the impressions of an experience can actually affect our neurology, which is our brain, which is kind of part of the organic nature part, and then that affects how we experience the next experience. And so I guess what I'm trying to emphasize here is the complexity of us human beings, and it does say that we are wonderfully made. This is supposed to be a good thing. I think the mystery of us is to reflect how mysterious and incredible God is. There is supposed to be a sense of awe, not defeat. So we shouldn't be defeated that we can't explain everything, because that's not where it's at anyway. Where is it at? It's it's in the love that heals us. It's in relationship. So we'll start with the blueprint. Big old blueprint. Okay. So we're going to build a life. Okay. And I'm going to, we are going to have time for questions um, afterwards, so I'm kind of going to zip through this. Usually I like to dialogue and do it with everybody. But I'm going to tell you all the answers, in other words, instead of having you answer all the questions. And I keep going in and out, but it's okay. Maybe I should. At this point, okay. Okay, cheat sheet, cheat sheet. So let's start with a baby That's how we come into this world, which is very amazing. This is a, I love philosophy, love philosophy. And I really want to come and talk sometime, Mike, about something other than just sexuality. I have a lot of stuff that I think about, you know? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes. And you know what? Nobody wants me anymore. I think I'm too scary for, I don't even have speaking engagements anymore. I don't know what the deal is, but... But, uh, yeah, the thought of coming into life as this vulnerable baby who cannot survive without others who are bigger. Wow, what kind of metaphor is that? And, whoa, how fragile is life? Because if those bigger others don't get it or never got it themselves to give... Ah, we are utterly exposed, utterly exposed. So what does a baby need to survive and thrive? Start out with food, a basic. Yet we take it for granted because babies who, a lot of babies aren't fed when they need to be fed. How is that affecting them emotionally? How is that affecting their bodies? Whoa, right off the bat. Baby needs warmth. Baby needs to be protected. A baby needs to be swaddled that sense of security, that there is somebody caring. A baby needs safety. Growing up in a dangerous environment is not good for a baby. A baby needs constancy and consistency. When there is a need, they need to know that the caregiver is coming right then so that they they begin to trust that I have a need and somebody is there to meet my need. And this rhythm begins to develop. And it's, it's, it's in the literature. There's a dance, especially between mother and baby, regardless if you're boy or girl. There's this dance of baby has need, mother comes. She even senses it before the baby cries. And need is met. And just this rhythm. Uh, baby needs nurturing. Baby needs to be touched, touched touched babies can die without being touched enough it's it's incredible to touch is to bond a baby needs eye gazing to be able to look into another's eyes that is also a bonding experience it's what's tethering the baby to this world literally to this world so the eye gaze so the baby's needing this sense of solid warm attachment a baby that has a sense that they are literally abandoned and out on their own is devastating for the development of the human soul. Baby needs to know they're attached and that they're attached to something that is good, that is good. And out of all of this, a sense of trust, this is foundational for a healthy life, is a sense of trust that all is well. And now... I can continue to grow, because that's what it's supposed to be about. A baby shouldn't have to be worrying about how to get their needs met, nor should children. But they should be about play and just learning and growing and expanding. So I know that as I speak this stuff, I'm talking about the ideal life, okay? And I realize that most of us didn't even have what I just spoke Um, I didn't, I wasn't touched or held in my family. I was never told that I was loved. There were no words spoken in that regard. So I know the deficits go deep and we'll talk about that in a minute. But it's important, you know, for those of you who really want to heal, um, to know what's the vision, you know, what's the vision of wholeness? What do I need? Um, why am I this way? So that's what I'm doing is trying to cast a little bit of direction and vision. So let's go into toddlerhood. What do two-year-olds need to survive, to thrive? They still need all this basic stuff for sure. Um, But boy, at this stage, they're really needing encouragement. They're needing direction. They're needing um, a lot of opportunity to learn, to play, stimulation, because we want to introduce them to the world, because one of these days, they're going to be out on their own. So they're moving out into the world. They really need that sense of security that they have home base. They can come back to mom and dad. So this stage, this bottom stage is so important. So a, a child growing up, maybe three or four years old, is needing affirmation. You can do it, buddy. You can do it. Yeah. That kind of affirmation, that kind of support. And they need little friends. You know, when you're a baby, you really don't, can't have little friends. But as we begin to develop our language skills and social skills, these little friends are really, really key. And when you 're about three or four years old, you don't even notice if it's a boy or a girl. you don't, but you hit a little older, and all of a sudden now the ooh, boy, girl, and kids will do that, boy, girl, I'm girl, But you get a little older, like maybe seven or eight i can 't remember i 'm too old at this point, where now the boys have cooties now we're going to push away this other boys, cooties, and you look at the playgrounds and the boys are congregated on one side and the girls are on the other. And this is a very important developmental stage in childhood because what's happening, again, unconsciously, we don't realize, but we're learning more about ourselves amongst the girls. I'm a little girl, I'm amongst the girls, and the boys are learning more about boyhood amongst the boys. And so how sad it is when a boy doesn't fit in how sad it is. And I work with plenty of women who didn't fit in with the little girls because they were out romping around with the guys. They had more fun with the guys, which is a great thing because they were athletic, they loved the outdoors, but they missed out. They missed out on this important socializing. So... They need someone to identify with. They need to have a little girl needs to see mom and go, I like mom and I want to identify with her. Or, a little boy, I like dad. He's a good guy. I want to be like him. It's important to have something, someone to identify with. So um, in all of this learning and growing and expanding, going out into the world, they do, it's important to have boundaries. And these boundaries are meant to con- contain safety they're not meant to squish a child's exploration but it's kind of like in this room it would be the walls in the room it just is this container it holds us so that the wind and rain you know doesn't disrupt what we're doing that's the nature of boundaries so really important so this child is growing continuing to grow and develop all of their needs are being met they're going through these developmental phases and they hit adolescence what do adolescents, teenagers need to continue to grow and survive? <clears throat> I used to say, my, my daughter's now 24, but um, when, when I used to do this lecture and she was about 16, female, what do adolescents need? I know she would say, money. <sighs> or there's <laughs> a lot of other things on our list like not daughter <laughs> um adolescence this is a time of beginning to build your sense of self and identity to know who you are so beginning to build that affirmation continues to be very important acceptance this is key it's important that we feel acceptable I mean some sense that we are okay and some sense that we fit in. and We fit into the human race, number one, but we fit in with this peer group of friends. A sense of belonging is incredibly important for our growth and development. And so at this point our sense of belonging is going to be same gender, opposite gender. Um, We're continuing to learn and grow about who we are. Now Possibly the opposite gender doesn't have cooties. But there are certainly some who go through puberty who really aren't quite established yet in their own gender, enough to be able to enter into opposite-sex relating. They still need to be in the same-sex peer group. That's Some people develop slower than others. And what's happening now and has been for quite a few years is that those kids who really just need to still be immersed in the same sex group, it's safer there while they're growing and developing, are basically told that they're gay. So, but it's is—it's absolutely a developmental need. So, um, deepening friendships are happening at this point. We need freedom because we're about to launch. So we launch into adulthood, and what do we need as adults to remain healthy, to thrive? It's amazing because, in some respects, we still need all all of this stuff. We still need. But we are now at the point where we can handle incredible levels of intimacy and closeness because we've built a self. We know who we are. We have a strong sense of identity. We have a solid sense of gender identity, and we're ready to now give. We're ready now to contribute to the next generation as mature adults. And we've got the capacity now to enter into a covenant relationship with another where we say, I want to tell you all. I want to give all of me to you, all of me. And this is risky business because it's major nakedness, major exposure. And I need to know that you're not going to walk away. I need to know that you're committed. And that's why a promise is still really, really important. Regardless of where our politics go in terms of all of this stuff, a promise is absolutely important for our soul. That covenant promise, I will stay, I will love you. Because we are now able to enter into this incredibly profound intimacy and oneness. oneness, And we adults also, um, besides deepening our intimacies, and we need relationships, we need friends, we need communities, we also need that sense of meaning and purpose. What am I about? You know, where, How do I leave my mark? So it's incredibly important that we're now living out of what we believe God has designed us for the meaning and purpose. So quickly, if we look at these, these are representative of stages. There's different kinds of love that are operating, and it's really kind of cool. This first stage, which was the baby stage, the the kind of love that's most important at this stage is, is mom love and dad love. It's motherly love, storge. Very significant, it builds the foundation of our soul. And then the next stage is um, childhood, and the significant love that emerges in that stage is friendship love, phileo. Absolutely essential for our de- development. Very important. Friendship love is when you, you grab arm to arm and you know little boys who love baseball or something, or maybe certain types of mystery novels, and they sit and they talk about that thing, or they're playing computer games together. So they're side by side going after whatever it is they love. That's friendship. This next stage in adolescence, we do go through puberty, and sexual feelings do begin to emerge. And with the sexual feelings, romantic feelings begin to emerge. And a romantic love is very different than friendship love, because friendship love is we're hopping along, you know, moving towards our passion. But all of a sudden, romantic love is whoa ho! It's you that I want. It's not that out there, you know. Now we're into this eye gazing. And this is really interesting. Eye gazing can't hold yourself back from touching, right? Touch is so powerful. Eye gazing, holding, whoa, looks really similar to what's happening down here with mother love and dad love. Um, there's something happening. There's a mirroring happening with romantic love that takes you back to that eye gaze that may even take you back to a primal place at some level. Now, romantic love does not have to end in sexual behavior, by the way. Um, In our culture, it typically does, but it doesn't have to. And um, I have several friends who have chosen to remain... um, celibate in their engagement for the sake of deepening emotional intimacy with their spouse-to-be. It wasn't because of just legalism, it, they, but they made a choice to refrain so that they could really stay focused on the emotional relationship and deepen getting to know one another. Um, and they have incredible stories. <laughs> it's incredible stories. So it's just something to think about wherever you're at. Um, But this block kind of represented the covenant promise between a man and a woman, um, committed to really share their all. And that is where I believe we've now got the adult maturity to handle the sexuality. It is powerful, like I said, very, very powerful. God has a plan. It's meant to image the Trinity, the oneness here that happens in sex. Is meant to image the, the pleasure of oneness in the Trinity. And there's more. There's more that it's doing, but it's a very powerful metaphor. God uses it, spirituality is connected to it. So sexual love, that one can represent that type of love. So let's just take a look, and, and you probably know if we don't have the ideal life, we don't have the perfect life. Um, and what if trust? was not established? And what if you didn't grow up in a safe environment? And what if your mother was deeply depressed and didn't know how to bond? And what if you were abandoned and you didn't have a father to start with? life crashes and this is more what it begins to look like on the inside so there are lots of holes there's a lot of loss and emptiness and yet don't you know the longings don't stop we are starving to know who we are we're starving for that acceptance we're starving for touch We're starving for affirmation. We're starving for connection. And, you know, sexual love sometimes can be the closest thing. It has that eye gaze that we didn't get from mom. It has the touch that we may not have gotten way young. It has the closeness, the connection. And it's so easy in this day and age to just say, I'm empty, so let's just fill it with that but it's not the right kind of love. It feels good. It may get you by, but it's not the right kind of love to heal what's really missing, what's really hurting. It won't heal you, There, but there are other ways to get some of the blocks filled in. So, Another devastating part of all this is when you bring abuse and trauma in, it's literally like exploding blocks inside of us. It just explodes blocks. There may have been love. There may have been some sense of trust. But you bring in abuse. Those of you who have been abused and suffered severe trauma, you know. It explodes whatever there was. It's not there anymore. Gone. And it can leave you feeling like this absolutely blown apart. And then we've got to survive, right? We talked about survival. So we've got to survive. So we build up the walls, defenses. We put on false selves to try to find that acceptance, to do whatever. And now what's happening is we're beginning to block true intimacy. We're beginning to block authenticity. Or we're, we're fearful. We're defending. And so we block stuff that really could be coming in. So it really, it can become a nightmare. It's very, very difficult. So quickly, just to take a look at women who often struggle with homosexuality, and these are the women who do not have a choice. These are not women who are just sleeping with guys and sleeping with girls. These are women who just cannot. There's no interest whatsoever. They, they are very oriented towards other women. Um, the themes that I see in their lives is often, <clears throat> there wasn't the nurturing, safe, soft place in the very beginning of their life. There were all sorts of things coming down, and it didn't feel safe to them. They're very sensitive, they're very intelligent, and they're picking up on things that other kids might not have picked up on, but it didn't feel safe. And there was always something off with relationship with mom, and I'm not saying mom was bad. I'm saying that what the girl was perceiving and what she was taking in, she didn't often want to be like mom. She didn't respect women. She didn't like being a girl because often there's sexual abuse, not always, but often there is. She didn't fit in sometimes with the other little girls because she was extremely athletic. She may have had a mathematical mind. She thought more like a boy. She didn't know how to connect with the girls because she didn't care about lipstick and foo-foo stuff. But she missed out on that socialization, and if she was sexually abused and started hating herself, She begins to fragment off parts of her identity, parts of her true self, really, her femininity, very important part of a a female's life. She starts splitting it off and disowning it. So now there's more fragmentation. The women I work with are incredibly strong, incredibly strong, and often um, they become caretakers. They'll take care of everybody else, and they are very compassionate, deep-hearted women, and they can see another person's need, and they begin to feel that need. But what's happening is they're so busy pouring themselves out, they're not getting anything back in return. And, in fact, to talk to them about learning how to receive, how to receive and be open, freaks them out totally freaks them out. That's a scary place to be, to receive, because what they received in the past wasn't good. It was harmful. Um, so there's, there's many other themes. One theme that I'm seeing more and more in really conservative Christian families is that the parents are such helicopter parents, and this is for you young parents. The parents are such helicopter parents, always just on the alert. Alert! Alert! keeping my child safe from evil and the wickedness of the world that they become so consumed with tracking down their kid and keeping track of everything that they miss their own child. They're not even looking into the eyes of their own child. They're not spending that bonding time getting to know them, filling them with the love, filling them with the encouragement and affirmation. They're just so busy doing, doing, doing. And it's killing our kids. And that—that that is very common in a lot of the women that I work with. So I'm, I'm just noticing the clock. Because um, we did want to open up for Q&A. So that's a very brief, brief on the female homosexuality. But I wanted you to all see that we're all the same. <laughs> we're all the same. <laughs> and how our missing pieces coalesce is very unique to our nature, which is unique, to our experiences, which is unique. Um, but the bottom line is we're all human and we're all living with the same thing. We're all struggling, trying to find our way. And, and I know um, a big, big, big piece about healing is to really look at the lies that we've believed about ourselves and to find the truth that God says. And I I might say more in conclusion, but I just wanna open this up for questions at this point so we can dialogue a little bit. So thoughts, feelings. The light is like right over you. Yes, yes
0: sir. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you said something about there's a certain group of them that have no choice.
1: Uh, are, you, are you saying that, that uh, God can't move and, uh, and restore what? Been- yeah, no. The choice that I'm referring to has to do more with their sexual behaviors because we... There's so many different variations out there these days. So I was just trying to make a distinction between what I would call kind of innate homosexuality, where it really is a developmental issue that started at a very young age so that the girl discovers more that she's gay versus the girls that are out there uh, experimenting with bisexuality, experimenting with homosexuality, who that is more based in a choice There's a lot of young women where they are clearly making a choice, and the women that I work with can't play around. Um, They feel very strongly this is just who they are. So it's more a distinction is what I was making. But, yeah, in terms of possibility of change, um, the game is on. It's a wide open territory. There's all sorts of aspects of our sexuality that we can change and we do so every day and don't think about it. We change our affections all the time. What attracts us can change. How we behave can change. Compulsions can change. Identities can change because for the most part, we're the ones who decide how to identify ourselves. That can change. So, does that, did that clear it up on, good question. I saw another hand. Yes. Why say that again? I didn't hear all of it. Why isn't salvation of human needs? Yeah. Well, very good, sir. Um, because I'm just like talking like a psychologist now, aren't I? Um, and you know what I used to do, which I just haven't done for a lot of years, is. After I built all this and then talked about all those different kinds of love, then I talked about a fifth love, which is agape, God's unconditional, perfect love. And it basically looks like this. Completely envelops, completely surrounds, and completely lifts up. We are literally in his agape love. And so we are made for God. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, boy, if your salvation isn't secure because of mistakes, then neither is mine, and I make mistakes every day. Yeah. Yep. Don't give up. Don't give up. Yeah, he and he know what he's a weird god. What can I say? He doesn't answer our prayers all the time. Yes. 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 Yeah. Well, here's the thing that we know for sure. God does not change. His love, his his acceptance does not change so that's what you can count on is his ongoing love so you trust in that not on what you do or don't do tr- it's all right it's all right right Okay, the question is, homosexuality is not considered a mental disorder anymore by the American Psychological Association, and so he's asking, how can we still treat homosexuality if it's not a diagnostic issue? Um, the, it was taken out, the, the short of the story in terms of how it was taken out is it was basically voted out by 13 people in 1973, I believe it was. It was not a vote of the entire um, organization, and in fact, the surveys that they did, they would have never gotten it voted out if they had done that way. It was a political movement within the APA, so it was taken out. Do I agree that it should have been taken out? Maybe. Because it does give us, uh, it does give, leave the sense that homosexuals are extra mentally ill, and I don't agree with that. Um, So in that way, it takes away some of that mental illness stigma. Um, How can I treat it if I have somebody comes to me and says, I don't believe this is what God wants for me. I have a severe issue with my homosexual feelings and attractions, and I want something more with my life. How I treat that is my ethical code says that I do not impose my agenda on my clients, number one. Every client has the right to autonomy. In other words, they get to decide, and every client has a right for self-determination. They get to choose how they want to be in this world. And so on those ethical notes, I can align myself with a person who wants to explore options. And likewise, a woman who is gay and wants to embrace her homosexuality and integrate it with her Christian faith, because I primarily work with Christians, Um, I do not impose my agenda on her. I allow her the autonomy. In fact, I want to bless her with autonomy because it's a part of her development. And um, I give her the right to self-determination, to stay on the journey that she's on right now. She's on a journey. I don't know where she's going to be 10 years from now. And so I work with women who are gay identified who just want healthier relationships, healthier life life in general. Um, So I practice what I preach. This has taken a lot of years for me to integrate all this, Um, but I believe very, very strongly in that, that people have a right to decide how they want to live. They have a right. Right. Does this mean that you won't develop normally as an adult or not have a normal genital stage, as the puts it, or you know, what would you expect to happen yeah. if a teenager wants to date, but they either can't date and that's, or can't find a date? And that's common. That is common. So you bring up a really good question, which I love the answer to. is good news. In terms of growth and development, we do have all these developmental stages. The good news about growth and development is it's fluid. Even though we may not have gotten what we needed down here or we didn't experience what we needed here, we can always return. We can always return to that and continue to work on our growth and development. We can continue to position ourselves to receive some motherly love, to receive the fatherly love through mentors, through, through church friends, we can receive. And, you know, adolescence, if we missed our adolescence, so to speak, we can pick that up in adulthood. And if there's something blocking us from finding people to connect with, if you want an opposite-sex relationship, then we work on it. You just look at what might be there that's blocking that, that's prohibiting it. That's the good news in all this, is that we can heal. We can grow. We can continue to grow. It's an incredible thing. Yeah. She, you know, she may be fine cuz that's she's young. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not all of us have to be dating at 13. That's okay. Some of us don't wake up until we're 25 or 35. Yes, sir. It, that's you. Yes. Okay, I didn't hear do I believe I'm not sure I even know what that is. What what do you t- re- Okay, so somebody who's interested in transitioning, well, absolutely they need therapy. <laughs> I mean, you know, and that transgender stuff is a whole nother issue. It's kind of a different line because it's more related to our gender identity than it is sexual preference or or sexual identity. And there's a lot of stuff going on in the transgender person. And there are some excellent therapists out there who know how to journey with people. Sex change is not recommended for everybody. And for some, it's a matter of life and death, you know, and it is. And it's very complex and... Again, to try to come at it with a lot of judgment is, is not going to work for the person who's struggling. Um, so, yeah. And, oh, boy, I have some stories. Of, if you ever want somebody to speak here, I don't know if you have somebody. I've got incredible person on that issue. Right. the interaction, right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, good, good point. And I, I kind of missed something that I wanted to say way early on in the lecture, um, which is how can our blueprint, affect us just even without experiences. For instance, um, body size or shape or hair style or different parts of our bodies and how they develop or don't develop and how that affects us emotionally, how that affects us relationally, how it affects us sexually, how it affects our gender identity. For for guys who might not have the muscular body build that you might want, how does your body affect you and your identity? That's how things begin to start interacting, is that we begin to form beliefs based on maybe the deficits or the trauma that happened to us. But how we form those beliefs, like this is bad, this is a bad thing, or I am bad, there's a belief, I am bad is gonna depend on our genetics. That depends on how we perceive, it depends on how we process, it depends on whether we're sensitive or not sensitive, because for one kid, a situation can totally devastate them because they're sensitive, they pick up on stuff, and another kid doesn't even notice it. So totally who we are blueprint wise determines how we're processing our life experiences. And it's so, yeah, it's totally interactional. Can there be anomalies in our blueprints yes, we know this. Um, Is there a gay gene? Let me bring that back to homosexuality, though. Is there a gay gene that determines who's gay and who's not gay? No. And the scientific, if you want the the references, I can give them to you. The scientific research at this point believes that there's possibly a 25% influence on the future development of homosexuality in a person's life that can be attributed to genetics or biology but they do not know what the contributing factor is that's kind of a long statement did that make sense so there's something influencing homosexuality that comes from the genetics but it's not a gay gene the the research is saying 75% of the influence on homosexuality development is coming from the experiential developmental part of life. So it's not so simple, I wish. you know, I wish it was just one factor and we could say that's it. So no gay gene, they're not even researching for a gay gene anymore. They're looking at other contributing factors. Well, maybe level of sensitivity is a genetic contributing factor. Maybe gender nonconformity. My clients, um, often are very athletic and are more like men than women. And it's natural for them. This isn't a brokenness in their life. They're mathematic, they're engineers, they're, they're incredibly athletic. That's called gender nonconformity. That's genetic. That is a genetic component. Wow, that does have some influence because it can confuse girls growing up in terms of their femininity. So am I answering, am I answering your question? Yeah, okay. And Mike, we're way over. Yeah. Okay. Good. So we'll wrap it up. Great talking to you all. You're wonderful. Thank you.